Hello, I'm Shane Hartsfield, pastor of Beaver Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Christ or questions about our church, direct you to our website, beaverbaptist.com, for our contact information. Weekly, we study exegetically through books of the Bible. And now, join us as we dive into today's passage. Turn your Bibles back to 1 Samuel chapter 1, page 266 in the Black Pew Bible. If you don't have your Bible, there's a Bible in front of you. Pick that up. Turn to page 6. 266, we're going to be looking at starting a new study today, walking through the books of First and Second Samuel. Today we're going to talk about trouble, the sovereignty of God and prayer. And when you study the book of a Bible, one thing that you, a couple questions we have to answer in order to understand the context of a book. The first question is, where does the incidences in this book fit in the overall story of redemption? Or in other words, what's the far context? So we're going to look at that in just a moment. The second question we have to ask, or what are the events immediately prior to the events in 1 Samuel? Or what is the near context? We have far context and near context. And so what I want to do real quickly is kind of review far context, where we are, the story of, of 1 and 2 Samuel. Where does it fit in the story of redemptive history? So the first thing we have to recognizes that before anything was created, God existed, right? We serve an eternal God. He's always existed. He was not created. He always has been. And then we know that this God, who is omnipotent, he used his own words to speak this world into existence. Everything that we see, God made. And he made man and woman. He put them in the garden, and he told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know the sad truth is that they disobeyed the Lord. And they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they fell. That's called the fall. They sinned, and paradise was lost. Sin entered the world. We continue with the story, and it, it goes downhill from there. But we do have hope. As God curses the serpent who deceived Eve in the garden, he curses the woman, Eve, and he curses Adam. But as he's cur- cursing the serpent, he gives a promise in Genesis 3.15, and he tells this serpent, that one day it would strike the heel of the descendant of this woman, but the woman's descendant would crush its head. And so the rest of Scripture from Genesis 3.15 onward is telling the story of how that came to be. So there's a glimmer of hope in Genesis 3.15, but, but things are still sin-riddled. We have Cain killing his brother Abel, and it gets worse from there. We have God regretting that he made man as man is sinful. Every inclination of the heart is only sinful all the time. And God floods the world. He judges the world by flooding it. And he saves Noah and his three sons and their wives. So We have the flood occurred. Then we have the Tower of Babel. Things don't get better. They just continue to get worse. God told them to be fruitful and multiply and scatter throughout the earth. But they didn't want to do that. So what do they do? They assembled together in one city, and they wanted to build a tower, not to give glory to God, but to give glory to themselves. So God judged them by confusing their languages and scattering them throughout the earth. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. But then we have another glimmer of hope, and God calls Abraham to go to a place he did not know. And God gives Abraham some promises. He says, 
Abraham, look up in the stars of the sky and see the stars. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And this, to your descendants, I'm going to give this land. And those that are bless you, I'm going to bless. And those who curse you, I'm going to curse. In other words, I've got your back. He says, through you, all the nations of the world, all the nations that he created at the Tower of Babel, all of those nations, they're going to be blessed through you. The only problem was Abraham didn't have a son, but God miraculously gave his barren wife a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had a wife. He took a wife named Rebekah, and they had twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob married Leah and then Rachel, and they had 12 sons. It became the 12 tribes of Israel. And these tribes, they found themselves in Egypt because the youngest son was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, and they ended up in providentially in Egypt. Because of a famine, their whole family was brought there, 70 and all. And 400 years later, they found themselves enslaved to the Pharaoh of Egypt because he was so fearful. Why? Because the promise of Abraham was coming to fruition. And that those 70 people are now over 1 million. But God wanted to deliver them as they cried out to the Lord for deliverance. And God sent a man named Moses. And through a series of events and 10 plagues, the last being the death of the firstborn, he delivered the nation of Israel. He told the Israelites to take a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and put it over the doorpost of their houses and God's going to come through that land and he's going to strike down the firstborn in every household. But if there's the blood of that lamb, I'm going to pass over that home and that firstborn will be saved. And so from that point on, the Israelites every year would celebrate the Passover. Well, they were rescued from Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea on dry land, and they're heading toward this land that God had promised to give Abraham's descendants. And on the way, they stopped at Mount Sinai, where God gave them the law. We call it the Ten Commandments. We call it Mosaic Covenant. We call it the law, the Torah. So God gives them the law. And what this law is all about, and the covenant with Abraham, is what God's going to do for them. It's a unilateral covenant. God says, Abraham, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this for you. But on Sinai, what God does is says, well, this is what I require of you as part of this covenant. And he gives them commands, how they should live, how they should treat one another. Well, this nation continues on towards the land, and the first generation dies because they disobey, and the second generation enters the land under the leadership of Joshua. And they go in and they conquer the promised land and divide it among the 12 tribes. And they do fairly well, but the problem is they didn't completely obey the Lord. And the people that they left in that land eventually began to rule over them. And instead of them conquering the land as they're supposed to, what ends up happening is the land, in some, some ways, ends up conquering them. And as those other nations are oppressing them, enslaving them, they cry out to the Lord. And you know what the Lord does? He sends leaders called judges to lead his people to victory over these oppressive nations. But what happens is that judge lives, the people continue to obey. But as the judge dies, the people do what? They turn back and start disobeying the Lord and worshiping idols. And then as that happens, God gives them over to another oppressive nation. And they're oppressed until they cry out to the Lord again and the Lord raise up another judge. And this cycle just continues and continues and continues. But what happens as these cycles continue is those judges who seem so valiant 
and heroic in the beginning, they become less and less valiant as the cycles continue. And the book of First and Second Samuel takes place at the end of the time of the judges. And this is a dark, dark time in the time of Israel, one of the darkest days of Israel. At this moment, the Philistines are the, the oppressive nation that are causing Israel such grief. In the near context, that's kind of the far context, in the near context, at the end of Judges, it's, the book has ended with a horrible rape and murder of a woman. And it was, didn't occur at the hands of foreign people, but it occurred from the Israelites themselves. And turn with me, you got the book of 1 Samuel, flip back to Judges, this last verse. I want us all to look at this. It's page 261 in your pew Bible. Just go left. You'll see 1 Samuel, Ruth, and then Judges. The last verse in this book, this is the near context I want us to see. Dark days they are in Israel. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So we see the, the darkness of the time of the judges, and there's no one to lead the nation, and they're doing what they want to do, justifying all their sinful ways. But in the darkness, there's a story of Ruth. You turn back right towards 1 Samuel, you see Ruth, chapter 4, verse 21, in the book of Ruth, which takes place during this same time frame, we see a, a brief genealogy that's really important. Ruth, chapter 4, verse 21, I'm sorry, let's look at verse 17, it says, And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying a, a, a son was born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now skip down to verse 21. Salmon, father, Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So the, the book of Judges says there's no king in the land. Everyone's doing as they see fit. And then the book of Ruth, there's a glimmer of hope here. The book of Ruth says, yeah, but that king is going to be David. And we know what David's like. He's a, God after, he's a man after God's own heart. He's a godly king. And that king is coming in the person of David. A couple other things I want to mention about this book. Originally, the first, the first and second book of Samuel were one book. It's been divided mainly for convenience sake. We'll see the outline up on the screen. First Samuel, I, I'm, I'm really big on outlines. So in front of every book, if you don't have a study Bible, I always write the outline of every book. In my Bible right here in First Samuel, I have this outline written. Chapters 1 through 7, concerning mainly with Samuel. Chapters 8 through 31, concerned mainly with Saul, one after man's heart. Then we get into Second Samuel. Chapter 1 through 20, Focuses on David, one after God's own heart. And then chapters 21 through 24 is the epilogue, which means just the, the closure, the closing. And this is a, these books, we, we've never preached through an Old Testament narrative book before. And so what I want to do is just kind of give you some hermeneutical principles. As we're studying this book, First and Second Samuel, we need to remember a couple things uh, hermeneutically that's going to help us as we study. The first 
is this. Remember, the story is, not a, is, a, is about God and his plans, not about anyone else. God is the hero. So think about Samuel as we see Samuel in the scriptures. He is described as a godly man. Um, he is blameless in the scriptures. He mediates for the people and he, he's rejected by the people. So in a lot of ways, he's, a, he's like Christ. We think about David, he's a man after God's own heart, but even all these stories, even the story of David and Goliath, who is the hero in this book? It's always God, God's the hero. Another thing we need to remember is these books, these Old Testament narrative books that tell stories, right, true stories of what happened, the history of Israel, they don't directly teach us doctrines, but they illustrate doctrines or principles taught elsewhere, okay? So we're going to be reading, talking about a lot of these stories, they're not going to directly teach us doctrines, okay? And then lastly, the, these stories, these narratives, they don't record what should have happened, but they record what did happen. So as we read the story of David and his sin with Bathsheba, it grieves our heart. Why would God have that put in the Bible? That's such a terrible thing, right? Or the, the rape of Amnon and Tamar. It's terrible. Why would God put that in the Bible? Because the Bible is true. And sometimes things happen in life that aren't pleasing. But God is giving us the history of Israel. And so let's remember those things as we continue to, to study through this book. And I'll, I'll ask you and, and encourage you to read through these two books. I read them this week. It doesn't take very long. It's very captivating reading. If, you're a, if you have a young son, they're going to love this book. Uh, it, it, it tells about all kind of neat things like a giant nine-foot man being killed by a little boy. Uh, it tells about a, a man who has six fingers and six toes who's killed by Joab. I mean, it's an amazing story. A lot of interesting things going on in this story. A lot, it's fun reading. So I'd encourage you, read it with your children and, uh, and, and allow those readings to be reinforced as we, as we teach through it. Three things about this book really quickly. First uh, and Second Samuel is a book of reversals. It, we see it time and time again the proud are humbled, and the humbled are exalted. We think about Saul, and he, he, he's the, king of, the first king of Israel, and he hears the song, David kills, or Saul kills his thousands, and David has killed his tens of thousands. And what happened is that caused him to be prideful, and because of his pride welled up, and he got mad, and he began to seek, after, seek to take David's life. We see him waiting for Samuel to come and make a, an offering, and he didn't want to wait, and so what did he do? In his pride, he offered the sacrifice as a king himself. And as a result of that, the kingdom was taken away from him and given to David. We see Goliath, who is nine feet tall, proud Goliath, every day coming out defying the God of Israel. We see him cut down to size, right, literally, by a little boy named David with just a sling. We see Absalom, who was so full of himself, he thought he would take the kingdom from his father, David. But he was humbled as his life was taken by Joab. So we see the proud humbled and the humbled exalted. We also see a book of transitions through this book of First and Second Samuel. We see the book of transition from the judges, these military leaders, to a monarchy, to kings. We see the 12 individual tribes transition to a, a united nation under David's leadership. We see the book of transition 
from the judges, Samuel being the last, to the king, Saul and David. We see transition from Eli, the high priest, being the spiritual leader of the, the nation, to Samuel the prophet taking that role. We see the transition from a tabernacle, which was mobile, they would take down and put up wherever they moved, to all of a sudden being a permanent structure, a permanent temple in Jerusalem. We see a transition of this frayed, fragile army quaking as they approach the Philistines to being this great, invincible army led by King David. It's a book of transitions from the capital being in Shiloh to being in Jerusalem. So it's a book of transitions, and it's also a book of struggle. And this is why we like this book. It's why I like this book, because it's a book of struggle. And we like struggle because why? We struggle. It's a book about real people with sin issues, with family drama. We see women who are barren and godly men who fail. We see servants of the king who are misunderstood. We can identify with such people because we too have clay feet. We're sinful and we struggle and we fail. But at this time, the nation's struggling. It's during the darkest time in Israel's history that we began the study in 1 Samuel. There's no leader, and they need a godly leader. And so the gracious God of Israel gave them a leader. And that first leader here in this book is Samuel. And the main point of these first two chapters is how Samuel was brought into the Lord's service. So we have this big problem. Times are dark. But this first chapter, as we dig into chapter 1, God wants us to focus on a really small family in the hill country. And part of this family loved the Lord. And the Lord, because of that, is going to use this family to do big things for God. Look at verse 1 and 2. Morgan's already read that for us. We won't reread it. I'll just kind of give you some commentary on it. Elkanah was a Levite from Ephraim. He was of a priestly family. And he had two wives. Now, the Old Testament doesn't promote polygamy, but it doesn't prohibit it either. But every time you see this occur in the Old Testament, things don't go well. And we know, of course, from the New Testament clearly teaches that God's will is for one man to be married to one woman. And it could be that Hannah was barren. She couldn't have children, and so Elkanah took another wife, Benina, to have children for him. Verse 3, we see them going up to the, to the place of worship to offer sacrifice. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, we see they're commanded every year to go to the place of worship that God would choose was Shiloh, but it's going to be Jerusalem. But even though there's this dark time, it's really dark, and people are just living sinful lives. We see Elkanah taking his family to worship. He was a faithful man of God. He loved the Lord. Part of the darkness of Israel was a result of the wickedness of its leaders. We think about Eli's sons. And Eli, he loved the Lord, but he was a flawed man. And we see his two Sons mentioned Hophni and Phinehas. They were wicked men who were self-absorbed, and they didn't respect the things of the Lord. They didn't revere God. But they go up and offer a peace offering. A peace offering was offered where part of the offering was eaten by the family to show you were in communion with the Lord. And so Penina, she's loaded with children. Verse 4 tells us, with all her sons and daughters, and here Hannah was barren. But I think there's two things as we look at chapter 1 we're going to learn from Hannah. 
two things from Hannah. The first thing in verse 5, that problems we have are purposed by God. We, we sang that song, He is sovereign over us, and He is. He's sovereign. That means He's in control of all things, of all of our lives. Every detail He knows about. Even the hurtful things. So why was, look at verse 5, why was Hannah barren? She couldn't have children, it seemed. And why is that? In verse 5 and verse 6, it says, the Lord had closed her womb. We see that a lot, don't we, in Scripture? You think about Hannah, she was barren, and she, she couldn't understand that. Lord, why won't you give me children? We see that in the life of Joseph, don't we? You remember Joseph? He was the one of the youngest sons of Jacob, and his son doted on him and loved him greater than the others and even gave him a, a coat of many colors that he flashed before his brothers, right? And his brothers were jealous, and so they threw him in a pit, left him there to die. Then they sold him into slavery, and he travels in chains to Egypt. You think Joseph was thinking, what in the world's going on? God, why is this happening? And then he becomes servant in Potiphar's house, and then Potiphar's wife had him thrown in a dungeon, and he was there for years. I think Joseph ever wondered, Lord, you forgot me. What's going on? Why is this happening? We see that in the life of Joseph. And Joseph didn't know why the Lord was allowing those things to happen until later, didn't he? We see this thorn in the flesh of Paul. Why did the Lord allow that? Paul didn't really know, did he? But there was a reason for it. What about Peter? Peter denied Jesus three times. Wow. Why did all that happen? And we see as, G as Peter is restored, we see the reason for that. But in our own lives, we don't always understand why difficulties arise. Why do we get sick? Why do we lose this loved one that we care for so dearly? Why do we go through this trouble in our family, with our children, with our marriage? Why financially are we struggling so? The Lord is sovereign over these things. Our troubles we have are purposed by the Lord. Things don't happen by accident or happenstance. God is ordaining these events. He's causing them or he's allowing them to happen. But God had closed Hannah's womb. And that's difficult for us. And some of us in our church have experienced that and dealt with that pain and, and struggle. And so in any age, in any culture, that's difficult, but especially in Hannah's day and Hannah's culture because it was an agrarian society, and the more children you had, the more wealth you had. Also, there was no Social Security. So without children, there was no one to take care of the aged parents. So this is a pretty big deal for Hannah. But God had a purpose in her suffering. And verse 6 through 8, she is weeping as the others eat their peace offering and even though she's been given a double portion by her husband, Elkanah, because he loved her so much, she's been humiliated and provoked by Penina. Elkanah's fruitful, obnoxious, overbearing wife. It's interesting, you know, as we come to worship. Visible worship, sometimes ha are, there's, there's optical illusions, aren't they? I mean, here they are, there's a family, they're going up to worship, and Penina is going up to worship, and she's, I'm sure she's real reverent, you know, and she's worshiping, but it's all an optical illusion, isn't it? Because you see her wickedness, right? Provoking Hannah every chance she gets. I've got children, you don't, right? Yeah, that happens maybe 
with us sometimes, don't we? We come to worship, but there's really no worship going on, right? It's all a facade. In verse 8, Elkinah tries to comfort Hannah, and he really does. He really loves her. He gives her a double portion, and what does he say? We know he's not really smart already because he's got two wives, right? Yeah, he's an idiot. But he loves the Lord, and he tries to comfort her, doesn't he? Look at verse 8. Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I mean, Elson says, she answered, but they couldn't put it in scriptures, right? They couldn't put that in the Bible, what she says. Like, no, sucker, you're not worth one son. You know, give me one son, I'll trade you in for one, right? But she's, man, she's just overwhelmed with grief, and she's so sad. She just wants a child, doesn't she? She's just so heartbroken. Think about how many people we, we know who say that, you know, they love the Lord. Or maybe some of us, we say, oh, really, I love the Lord. But when things don't go well or we don't get from God what we think we deserve, we, we doubt God's goodness sometimes, don't we? Well, God, if he loved me, he wouldn't allow this to happen, right? The sovereign God has a purpose for our troubles and our trials. The second thing we can learn from Hannah is, we, we should not let our troubles keep us from worship. We shouldn't let our troubles keep us from worshiping the Lord. Look at verse 9, 11. So what did she do? And, and notice Hannah. She listened to her husband. She submits to him. She wipes her tears away, and she eats. She takes the reproof from her husband. It says that she ate. After they had eaten and, and drunk in Shiloh, she rose, and she went to worship. And so Hannah is sitting before the Lord, and she's casting her cares on the Lord. And that's the right thing to do, isn't it, when we're downtrodden and we're suffering. And she makes a vow, and she, verse 11, she vows that she would give this child to the Lord, and he would be a Nazarite all his days. Now, there's several full-time Nazarites, Bryce. One of them is Samuel. The other one is Samson, and the other is John the Baptist, full-time Nazarites in the Bible. And what would happen, in order to serve in the temple and be a servant of the Lord in that way, you had to be a Levite. But if you want to take a special vow and you want to serve the Lord, you can become a Nazarite. And we see people doing that throughout the Scriptures. Paul did that for a time. He made a vow to the Lord. We see that in the New Testament with Paul. But what she did is she said, if you give me a child, I'll give him right back to you which is pretty amazing. You think about all the, the, the pleasures and the, all the benefits of having a son. She's willing to forfeit all of those things if the Lord will just give her a son. It means if he's going to be a Nazarite, he's going to move out of the house. Everything that would be valuable about having a son, she's going to renounce. Every benefit she was giving up. Everything that she had hoped, previously hoped for in a son, she's saying, I'm going to give that up to you, Lord. In verse 12, Eli, he mistakenly thinks Hannah is drunk. And in verse 16, Hannah doesn't want Eli to think she's worthless. That word worthless is interesting. A drunk is a, is a person of the devil. That's what the scripture said. That worthless person is a person who's worthless. They're wicked. They're So look at Eli's response as she tells Eli why she is so burdened. And Eli answers, Eli's the high priest. 
He says in verse 17, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant you petition that you have made to him. And she took the high priest word as coming from the Lord. Look at verse 18. Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. I think it's interesting. She went to the Lord with her, with her worry and with her struggle and with her burden. I think about my own life. One of the things I battle with, I battle with anxiety. And so when I find myself being anxious, and it becomes, it becomes a physical thing with me. It's not just a mental. Of course, usually what happens in your mind, right? You don't see things rightly. My perspective's wrong. All of a sudden, physically, I become anxious. And things happen to my body. And I hate it. For me, it's like a, if a person taking speed, right? My heart races, kind of nauseous, but I'm just, just kind of physically, that's what happens. It manifests itself physically. And I, there's no way I can get rid of it. You know, as I'm thinking about church, thinking about life, thinking about my kids, thinking about whatever, I just get anxious. And so what I have to do, I know this isn't going away until I get in my prayer closet. And for me, the prayer closet, usually this men's small group class because it's dark. And I have to go in there and just spend time. And I have to just bring this to the Lord and just give it to him, just give it to him, just give it to him. And I, I remember and think about his word and it reminds me of how he's faithful and he's good and even this that's upon me at this moment causing me this anxiety and physical discomfort is, is, is good in some way. It's from the Lord. But I, I go to the Lord and you know what happens. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God. That's what I'm doing back here, right? And then what happens? And it don't just like that. It's not like we just throw up these little things like this. Sometimes I got to be in there a while, right? And I, the phone's ringing. You're like, "Dagum Shane, where's he at? Why ain't he answering the phone? Sometimes because I'm just in there going, Lord, help me see things rightly. Help me trust you as I should. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That happens. He gives his, his sons and his daughters the peace that nobody can understand. And that's what happened with Hannah, right? She takes this to the Lord. Eli speaks to her. She takes it as the word of the Lord, and she gets up. She's no longer sad. And that notice it doesn't say she prays. She gets pregnant, and then she has joy. See that? It's not that she prays, then, okay, she knows she's conceived, and then she has joy. Nuh-uh. She prays. She has joy, and then she gets pregnant. See, it says her husband knew her after that fact, and she conceived. Yeah, see, interesting, isn't it? She prays, she has joy, and then she's, she conceives, not the other way around. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Verse 20, the Lord remembered her, right? Yeah, we can learn from Hannah, can't we? Our troubles are purposed by God. The prosperity gospel is no gospel. We lived in a sin-filled world. We have flesh that's sinful and selfish. We're affected continually by sinful people around us, whether it be coworkers, family members, neighbors, 
people driving down the road. But our, our troubles, our trials are purposed by the Lord. Don't allow our troubles to keep us from worshiping the Lord. And then the main point of our text, the third thing that we learn from our text is to see the ministry of Samuel, the judge and prophet, begins. That's the main point of this text. If you had to say, what's the main point of chapter 1? It's not that Hannah was godly. It's not that Hannah handled this well and, and the Lord blessed her. But the main point would be that Samuel, the judge and prophet, he begins his ministry here in chapter 1. This child that Hannah conceives is given the name Samuel. Let's read this together. Verse 19, we're just going to, or, or verse 21. Let's read this. The man, the man Alcana and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. This is later, right? This is the following year. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, see, it's the next year, right? She conceived and she had a baby nine months later. I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Now, a child will be weaned three or four years, right, in that day and time. So I'm going to wait here, and when the child's weaned, I'm going to bring him to the, to the temple, and I'm going to leave him there. Notice what it says. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with three-year-old bull and an FF of of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. Verse 26, and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in the presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And notice that last verse. And he, being Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. He stayed there from age three or four years, and he grew up there and under Eli's care, and he worshiped the Lord. Samuel, he's the, the last judge and the first prophet. And he's born, and he goes to to live there in the temple, given up by his mother to serve the Lord. He's a Nazarite. He'll serve him all his days, and he'll serve God rightly and righteously. Just by way of application, how do we apply this text to our lives, this first uh, chapter of 1 Samuel? I, I think, firstly, is we need to think rightly about our troubles, about our trials and our heartaches. We all have them. Some are carrying a heavy burden today than you have been. You're carrying a heavy burden than I do today, maybe. But we need to think rightly about our difficulties. And some of our difficulties, they're not even a result of our own sin. It's a result of someone else in our sphere of influence that is affecting us, right? And the burden is heavy. But let's think rightly about our troubles. They're purposed by God. And we need to realize, I think, to help keep keep us from getting bitter. Sometimes when things don't go our way and the Lord's not, he's not acting towards us like we think he should. We think a lot of that, think that way a lot of times, don't we? Well, God, you're not giving me this or you're not doing this for me. And we'll get bitter if you're not careful. We'll get mad and angry, right? One, one remedy for that is to think rightly about our struggles. And, and one thing that we need to remember is everything above hell 
is a privilege for us. We're like, God, you should be doing this, and you should be doing this, and you should be doing this. When we do that, we're acting like the Lord, right? Like we know better than God. But if you think about it, the Scriptures teach us that we're all sinful. We've all rebelled against the Lord. And we deserve his wrath. And everything above that is grace. Some of you here today, you're not even a believer. You wouldn't even say you're, you've repented and followed Christ. Your, your life, you don't even love God. But yet you live a good life. You're healthy and you're wealthy and you got a family and you got this going for you and this going for you and this going for you. But you don't even love God. That's grace because you deserve none of that. I don't deserve anything I've got. All my, my, my family, being able to pastor this church, health, everything I have, I don't deserve any of that. I deserve the wrath of God. So remembering that helps us, doesn't it? It'll help us when we have these troubles. Wow, it's, it's bad, but man, it's not near as bad as it should be. We need to think rightly about our struggles. And maybe you're here and you don't, you've never even thought about that. Everything above hell is a privilege. Everything above the wrath of God being poured out on me for all eternity is grace. Maybe you need to think about that. Because the Bible is real clear. We're all sinful. And because of our sin, we're separated from the Lord. And when we breathe our last, guess what? Body and soul separated. Body will be buried to decay. But that our soul is going to be somewhere forever. And if you've yet to repent and trust Christ, you're going to be separated from the Lord. And you'll receive just what you deserve. Sometimes we think, you know, oh, hell, that's so bad and that's so terrible. But in some ways, it's so good because that is right because God doesn't do anything wrong. Wow, that's kind of heavy, isn't it? Maybe you've never thought about that. Everything above hell is a privilege. And maybe up to this point in life, you're thinking, you know what? I deserve, I deserve some good stuff. I deserve to have a good life and have a good wife and have a good husband and have a good job. I deserve this, 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 this. No. That's not true. That's not biblical. We have to think biblically about our troubles. We're sinful people. We deserve God's worst. And the thing about it is, he's going to pour, he's just, he pours that out upon every sinner. That's what's coming. And that's what's right. But the great news, the good news that Jesus he took on flesh and he walked this earth like you and I are doing. He lived this life, but he didn't live it sinfully like we do, self-absorbed, sinfully. No, he, he lived it perfectly according to the Father's will. He lived the life that we have to have. And then he died the death that, that, that we have to die. The Father poured out his wrath upon Christ. He was buried on the third day. He rose and he ascended into heaven. After about 40 days, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. But you know, one day he's coming back, and he's coming back to, to get his church, but he's also coming back to judge sinners. But the great news is that you don't have to, we don't, you don't have to receive the wrath of God. The, Jesus' message, everything John the Baptist, Jesus, his apostles, everything they preach could be summed up in repent and believe. And he wants you to repent, turn from living your self-absorbed life, he wants you to turn from that, and he wants you to turn and trust Christ's work on the cross as your own. Because Jesus lived the life you need to have, and he died the death you have to die. And if we repent and trust him, he'll give us that 
life and that sin debt's been paid. It's this transaction that takes place. It's miraculous. It's hard to understand and fathom. But when we, all we have to do is just turn from our sin and just trust Christ. Yeah. It's nothing we do on our own. That's, the, that's how it has to be, and that's what makes it so beautiful. Jesus did it for us. So if you're here and you've never repented and trusted Christ, do so today. Just cry out to the Lord, Lord, I realize I'm a sinner, and I do deserve your wrath. Forgive me. Jesus died for me, and he rose, on the dead. he rose from the dead for me. I know he died for my sin. I want to receive forgiveness. I want to walk with you, and I want to live with you, and I want to know you intimately and call you Father. So when I do die, I'll be able to be with you in glory forever. Not because I'm good, but because you're good. If that's what you want, then today cry to the Lord. If you don't understand how to do that, I'm here. I'd love to talk to you about that. It's what I live for, right? But there's so many other people here that can tell you the same thing I'm going to tell them. If you've got a question, I ask somebody, say, hey, how can I repent and believe? I want this forgiveness. I want to know God. Application number one, think rightly about our troubles and our, our sins. And the second thing, just like Hannah, don't let our difficulties keep us from worshiping the Lord. Don't get bitter. Well, God just didn't, you know, things just didn't go well, and he took this, and he took that, and he made this happen, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then I'm all bitter, mad at God, because don't do that. It's not biblical thinking. That's wrong. Okay? It's, not, it's not biblical. Don't think unbiblically. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information, and we'll see you next time.